when Lawrence Singleton brutally raped, mutilated and left Mary Vincent for dead in 1987, he would only serve a sentence of eight years and four months. In 1997, he would commit the ultimate crime. He would murder a 31-year-old mother of three. This is the story of Roxanne Hayes. Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, tonight is part two of the Mary Vincent Larry Singleton case. So if you are a new listener or you haven't listened to last week's episode, please go back and have a listen as it will give you an idea on what type of animal Larry Singleton is. Well, there was a lot of chatter on Facebook and Twitter over this case, not only discussed in what sort of scum Larry Singleton was, but what a warrior and survivor Mary Vincent is. For those of you who did listen to last week, I will do a brief cap recap anyway. So last week, 15-year-old Mary Vincent, who'd run away from home and was living rough on the streets, decided she would go live with her grandfather in Corona, California. She hitched a ride from Berkeley, where it was popular for hitchhikers to get a lift. She was standing with two other hitchhikers when 51-year-old Larry Singleton pulled up in his truck and offered only Mary a lift, even though his van was empty. Mary ignored warnings from the other hitchhikers and accepted the lift. There is a dispute at one stage during the journey, but that gets sorted out and they drive towards LA. Singleton drives off the main road to take her piss and Mary gets out of the van to stretch her legs. She bends down to tie her shoelaces just in case she needs to run away from this guy and is bludgeoned over the head with a sledgehammer. Singleton then puts Mary in the van, ties her hands behind her back and viciously rapes her. Then naked, moves the van to a more secluded area by the side of a cliff. Singleton continues to rape Mary throughout the night with Mary protesting to him to set her free, to let her go and that she won't tell anyone. Eventually Singleton tells her he'll set her free, cuts her bindings and then with an axe cuts off both her arms below the elbow, throws her off a 30 foot or 10 metre cliff, goes down and drags her body into a concrete water pipe thinking that if she's not dead already, that she will be dead soon. He goes back to the van and drives off. Thing is, Mary is not dead, and she's determined to live to stop her attacker from doing what he did to her, to someone else. Singleton is caught, and Mary is able to testify against him, and he's found guilty on all charges of rape, sodomy, oral copulation, kidnapping, 
mayhem and attempted murder. He was sentenced under the law of the time to only 14 years, with the judge saying, if I had the power, I would send him to prison for the rest of his natural life. But because of good behaviour, Singleton, to the horror of not only Mary, but the wider community, was out in just over eight years. So this is where we pick the story up. Singleton's out of jail, served his parole time, and is living in Tampa, Florida. Tampa, like most places, didn't want him, but he was able to settle in. Before he attacked Mary, he was an alcoholic, and he returned to his drinking ways as soon as he got out of the big house, even though he attended AA meetings while on parole. In 1990, he got 60 days for shoplifting a $10 disposable camera, and just six weeks after being released, he again got caught shoplifting, this time a $3 hat for fuck's sake. He told police he was buying adult diapers in bulk for an Alzheimer's patient that he was caring for. He was so elated that he got the whole cart full for five bucks that he totally forgot about the $3 hat in his head. I mean, what can you get for five bucks and get a whole shopping cart full? Maybe they haven't got very good elastic in them. Anyway, when arrested... Singleton gave police a false name and he was charged and convicted, sent away for two years for shoplifting and obstructing police without force. In January 1977, Singleton's neighbour noticed he was in his van and looked distressed. As he approached the van, he could see that the engine was running and the exhaust was redirected into the cabin. The neighbour pulled Singleton out of the van and he was rushed to hospital. Singleton survived his suicide attempt and returned home. So now we're going to get to the 19th of February, 1997. And a lot of the following is from court records. Paul Hitson had been commissioned by Singleton to paint his house. Paul turned up at Singleton's house on the 19th of February 1997 to check what was required in order to finish the job. Paul was with his uncle and they pulled their car into Singleton's drive and noticed his van was there with the back doors open and a roll of carpet hanging out the back. Hitson knocked one time on the door and said, Hey Bill, and walked in. I'm here. Now, people knew Singleton as Bill. When he walked in, he noticed pills scattered on a table, but this was not unusual as the place was always a mess. The place also stank of alcohol as Singleton was known to drink two gallons of vodka a day. Now, that's about 10 bottles of booze. I don't know about you, but that's a lot. Hitson walked further into the house and he heard a cry for help. He kept walking further towards the cries and there was another cry for help. Now Hitson would testify that it sounded weak and muffled and just choking like gurgling sounds. He then stopped at the living room and was able to look in. He saw Singleton on top of a woman 
and at first he thinks they're just having sex on the couch. At this stage, Hitsant leaves the house, grabs a shovel from the side of the house and gets his uncle. They both look into the window to see Singleton with his hands around a woman's neck. Now this woman is 31-year-old mother of three, Roxanne Hayes, who also did a bit of sex work on the side. She was known to Singleton and they'd hooked up several times before, with Singleton usually offering her about 20 bucks or so for oral sex. They had more than a business relationship. Roxanne would often cook and clean at times as well. She did have a cocaine habit, however, how severe this was is open to conjecture. So Hitson and his uncle are looking in the window and they can see Singleton hunched over Roxanne with his hands around her neck. They hear another cry for help and Singleton hits her and says, Shut up, bitch! They didn't see the woman attacking Singleton or trying to defend herself. Next, they see Singleton plunging his arms down towards the woman's neck and chest area and they hear the sound of chicken bones cracking. After this, they heard no further sounds from the victim on the couch. Around six minutes had gone by from the time Hitson heard the first screams of help until he saw the three blows into the neck and chest area. Okay, so six minutes is a lot of time to stand around watching, hearing someone crying for help with a gurgling sound. What was Hitson and his uncle waiting for? To see some free sex show with a 61-year-old guy for fuck's sake? Anyway, Hitson and the uncle take off and call 911. Deputy Morphy turns up around 6.23pm, parks his patrol car behind Singleton's van, and now he thinks he's on some sort of domestic call, not a murder in progress. Morphy approaches the front door and knocks, and a minute or two later, Singleton answers the door. Singleton is standing there with blood all over his shirt, and his fly is undone with his dick hanging out. Now, it's said that he had a franger or condom still hanging off the end of his knob. Deputy Morphy told Singleton he'd been called to a domestic dispute at this location and asked him what happened. Singleton told him that he'd been in a spat with his girlfriend, that she was inside, but that everything was okay now and that he could leave. Singleton was jittery and seemed extremely nervous. At the trial, according to Deputy Morphy, he said, Singleton was moving around from side to side, insisting over and over again that everything was okay and that I didn't need to be there, that everything was okay now, that I didn't need to be there, that I could leave. And he was jabbering the way he was talking, very nervous. When Deputy Morphy asked him how he got blood on his chest, Singleton replied that he'd been cutting turnips and that he had cut his chest. At this stage, 
Singleton's phone rang and Singleton went in to answer it and as he did, the deputy followed him in. As he entered, he saw the door to the living room slightly open and he looked in to see the foot of a woman lying on the floor. As he looked further into the room, he could see the naked body of a woman lying face down. He would go on to say, She was face down. One of her legs was cocked up or extended up. Her left arm was down and extended out on the ground. She had cuts on the sides of her back. Her face was facing to the left and there was a blood clot in her nose and her eyes were closed. She had cuts on her fingers. She was a slight shade of grey. She wasn't breathing and she wasn't moving. Deputy Morphy could see she was either dead or seriously injured and ran out to his car to call for backup and medical assistance. Singleton then walked out of the house and Deputy Morphy told him to step behind the van and place his hands on the van. He handcuffed Singleton and put him in the patrol car. When assistance arrived, Roxanne was dead. Singleton was seen too and found to just have a minor cut on his chest. He was heard to say, We had an argument and she threw something at me so I killed her. And I guess that makes me a murderer. So you got me now. Now remember the maximum sentence Singleton got for the brutal attack on Mary Vincent was just over 14 years and he was let out in just over 8 years. Singleton, the guy the neighbour saved just weeks before this murderous attack on Roxanne. Now I'll read part of the autopsy report. Now the trigger warning here if you are squeamish. This autopsy report was by Associate Medical Examiner Dr. Lee Miller. He found that Roxanne died from multiple stab wounds of the trunk, penetrating the heart and the liver. He noticed a total of seven separate stab wounds, six on her trunk and one on her face. A facial stab wound went deeply into the soft tissue and muscle of the face about two inches. The fatal chest wound only measured a quarter inch on the skin surface but it went straight through two inches and it penetrated the right ventricle of the heart and Miss Hayes bled to death rather rapidly from this wound. The wound marked as number five was located on the right side of the victim's abdomen. Wound marked number seven was located on the lower abdomen and was not a deep wound. The wound penetrated about a quarter inch below the skin surface and was a superficial wound, at least superficial compared to most of the others. This was the deepest wound. It went six or seven inches into the body and completely through the liver. Without if this had been the only wound sustained and without medical attention, she undoubtedly would have died from it, but not right away. This wound reached the spinal column 
without penetrating the spinal cord. The wound marked number six was located somewhat in the centre of the victim's abdomen. Dr Miller testified that this was also a fatal wound. This wound was also a deep wound. It also penetrated the liver and would have been fatal without medical care had she not sustained the other rapidly lethal wound. Dr Miller testified that Roxanne would have been conscious for most of, if not all of the attack and would have felt every stabbing blow from Singleton. Dr Miller also observed injuries to the victim's hands. Dr Miller described these injuries as very deep wounds. He says, Well, the victim has three wounds on her fingers across the fingers of her right hand. One involves the middle finger, the ring finger, and the other, the small finger. All are deep in size wounds or cuts. They are lined up with one another, one, two, three, and they go very deep. They almost go to the bone. They are almost certainly defensive wounds where Roxanne tried to grab the blade of the knife and it is pulled out from her, cutting into her fingers. Her left hand also had defensive wounds. Dr. Miller described them as similar to the ones on the right hand in that they are deep incised wounds, cuts or slashes. They, expe- they extend almost to the bone and they extend to the index, middle and ring fingers. But they are different from the right hand ones in one respect. They are not lined up. They are not parallel to one another and they are not in a single line which indicates that they are defence wounds like that of the right hand, but they weren't inflicted by a single slash or blow of the knife. They were probably inflicted by at least two or maybe three. Fuck, what a terrifying ordeal, having to grab the blade of the knife to try and defend yourself. Anyway, Singleton is charged with murder and on April the 14th, 1998, he's convicted. Now, during the penalty phase, the prosecution fly Mary Vincent in and she testifies, but the defence try to object. They don't want the jury to see her prosthetic arms as it may sway the jury to give a harsher sentence. Now... This is a death penalty case here. As you know, when being sworn in, you need to raise your right hand. The defence objected to this and wanted Mary to keep both arms below the dock so they couldn't be seen. Now luckily, the judge didn't have any of this and Mary was able to tell her story and be sworn in just like anyone else would be. As the trial court noticed in its sentencing order, this capital felony was committed by the defendant who 19 years earlier was found guilty by a California jury of rape, kidnapping, mayhem, sodomy and attempted murder. The defendant committed these crimes against a 15-year-old hitchhiker, Mary Vincent. 
As Miss Vincent described in her testimony during the penalty phase of this case, Lawrence Singleton held her against her will in his van, wherein he chopped off each of Miss Vincent's arms with a hatchet and left her for dead in a culvert alongside an isolated roadway. The trial court also observed that this murder was not simply a fight between a disturbed alcoholic and a cocaine-using prostitute, as Singleton's defence argued, but it was heinous, atrocious and cruel. Lawrence Singleton drove a knife into the body of Roxanne Hayes seven separate times. The fatal blow penetrated Ms Hayes' breastbone, pierced her heart and caused her to bleed to death over several terrifying minutes. According to Dr Miller, Roxanne Hayes could have remained conscious for several minutes after the infliction of this wound. Singleton also drove the knife through Miss Hayes' liver, stopping only as it ran up against the spinal column. He plunged the knife into her liver on another occasion as well. Roxanne Hayes fought for her life. Her futile attempts to ward off Singleton's knife left the fingers in one of her hands nearly severed and the fingers on the other hand cut down to the bone. She literally clawed for her life as she dug a fingernail into the defendant's chest. These defensive wounds and the time that passed between Ms Hayes' cries for help established beyond a reasonable doubt that she was acutely aware of her impending death. The jury voted in favour of the death penalty 10-2. to 2. Judge Bob Mitchum said, This was an unprovoked, senseless killing of a human being. We are living in times worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. So, Singleton would die of cancer on death row just three years into his sentence on December the 28th, 2001, age 74. Okay, Islanders. So, when we have a look at the crimes of Larry Singleton we see that he initially got off pretty easy when he attacked Mary Vincent and left her for dead. But he was penalised to the maximum extent of the law as it stood at the time. At least the outrage of the community got the laws changed, but that didn't help Roxanne. Even if Singleton did serve his full 14-year sentence, he would have been out before her murder was committed. Roxanne was unaware of Singleton's previous crimes. She saw him as a way to pick up a few bucks every now and then, which helped to pay for a cocaine habit. The other thing that shits me about this whole saga is the way the media, including publishers and movie producers, were all over Mary Vincent at the time of her crime But when the fanfare died down, they all disappeared, leaving her with no money, not even money to get the basics, such as decent prosthetics. Book and movie deals all broke down, probably because her story was just too disturbing for public consumption. 
But when Singleton committed murder, they were all over Mary again, wanting to hear her story to grab any rating point they could get. And yet again, when the story died down, she was left abandoned. Maybe if it happened now, there would be some GoFundMe page to raise money for her ongoing care. I haven't been able to find out much about what Mary's up to today. I think she must be doing her painting and trying to stay out of the public eye and get on with her life as best as she can. Now, another thing that shits me is how there is so little information about Roxanne. The media, as soon as they hear she is, and I'll say this in the accepted term of the day, prostitute, it's as if her life is less valuable than others. She was a mother of three, and although she may have had problems and a small coke habit, she was just trying to get by, even if she did do a bit of sex work on the side. The autopsy only found small residual traces of coke in her system, as would be found from use several days before, so she wasn't a heavy daily user. But prostitute, it sounds so much better than mother of three to get public attention. I suppose, and it is relevant in this case, we need to have a good look at current bail, sentencing and parole legislation across the board. It is usually a local thing, not a federal thing, and there have been cases all over the world where perps have been granted bail only to take off and commit more crimes or they've been let out early time and time again to escalate their offending or that they are given woefully inadequate sentences. So, in order for us to understand the justice system a bit more, I will be doing an Ask the Lawyer show in a few weeks with Jeremy Maspero from Maspero Legal. He's a legal guru and criminal defense and family law lawyer. He's also a really good guy. And I would love for all the islanders to send me questions about bail and parole. I was chatting to Jeremy over coffee the other day and even he said that penalties don't stop people committing crimes. You can have the death penalty, but that won't stop people murdering other people. But I will let Jeremy answer all your questions in the next couple of weeks. So send them in to me at my email or post on the Facebook page at True Crime Island. Now, the email address I will say in a little bit. Now, there was some feedback last week that Mary did forgive the guys that saw her walking bloodied on the road and they turned around and drove off, leaving her there. Yes, yes, I did know about that, but that doesn't mean they weren't scumbags for doing it. So, sorry for the delay this week. As you may know, I flew out to visit the lovely Katie in Thailand, and I forgot my script. But thankfully, most of it was on my work laptop, which my mate Kinson was able to email to me yesterday. So, thanks Kinson. As usual, it's the end of the show, and I'd like to shout out to all the patrons of the island. Hi to Nick Russell. Nick, check your email as you've qualified for the mug of rage, and I need to confirm your address and tell me which mug you want. Now, thank you so much for all your support. 
Thanks to all the existing and past patrons, your support is very much appreciated as this is a commercial-free podcast that is totally listener-supported. Now, if you want to become a patron of the island, just go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island for as little as a dollar a month you can become a patreon now all funds go directly back to the island you can also do a one-off payment via paypal and you can do that just like emma james christy booth and jennifer pinkerton did just by typing paypal.me forward slash true crime island you can buy me a beer thanks guys so much If you want stickers, koozies, pins or keychains, you need to email me directly. Now my email, and this is for the questions for the lawyer as well, cambo at truecrimeisland.com. I can price up whatever you want according to postage. Now I do have a pack, $20 and a $25 loot pack available. They've got keychains, lapel pins, koozies and stickers, and it includes postage. You can, of course, as I said, buy keychains, pins, koozies by themselves if you like. Just email me for pricing. All the other merch, such as t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, mugs of rage, all of that's via the shop at truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Now, that might be all confusing, so if you just go to truecrimeisland.com, my website, not only can you download or stream the shows, but it's got all the links there, including my email address. I'm losing my voice. Again, you do not have to spend money to support the show. You can rate, review, and share the love. The more people who know about the show, the better. Now, if people don't know what a podcast is, show them the way. There's a great world out there. Join the Facebook group. Just search for True Crime Island and join in the chat. So join the closed group, please. We've got great moderators, Jason and Senga. They'll sort you out. Don't forget to check out the Twitter and Instagram where the island handle is at True Crime Island. You can join in the chat there. And again, there's so many other podcasts there. You can chat to the hosts. They're all lovely people. Promo time. Tonight I have one promo for Murder Was The Case. Criminologist Lee Mellor discusses the darkest, most perverse, bestial crimes known to man. Now, Lee says, if you can't handle it, tap out now. Well, that's about all for tonight. Lots of love to Maggie Jane. So this has been Cambo, and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Let's skip the foreplay. Murder. You want to talk about it. Hear about all kinds of nasty things. Sex. Torture. Madness. Dismemberment. And why, more than anything, you want to know why. Well, dear listener, you ain't never had a friend like me. Tune in to Murder Was the Case. Featuring author and investigative criminologist, Lee Meller. Sometimes solo, often with guests, 
always horrifically entertaining. Listen to Murder Was the Case on iTunes, Google Play, or go to murderwasthecase.podbean.com. It's gonna be sick.